Good morning. Is that working? Okay. Um, my name is Rachel. I am excited to be with you guys today. We have, my husband and I, Alex, Alex, my husband and I, have been uh, at Mosaic for quite a while. Uh, we are commission partners here, which is just our language to describe that this is our church home and our church family. Um, I don't do this for a living, or this is not my day job, and so everybody bear with me if I get pregnancy brain and all of that kind of stuff. It's very real. <laughs> so, uh, but Luke has a lot of really, really good things to say, and I, um, I'm just excited to dive into that. Um, when I first read this verse, I thought, man, John the Baptist is a little bit of a grump. <laughs> like, he's not, like, the kind of person you want to get stuck with at parties. Like, he's, he's not a pleasurable guy to be around, necessarily. Um, so when I first read this passage, I was like, yikes. Um, because this is the third Sunday of Advent, which is the Sunday of joy, as we have mentioned uh, we lit the pink candle. My daughter is four, and so she says that it's joyful because pink is her favorite color. So how could pink not bring joy? And that's the only candle I actually remember because I did not grow up in a liturgical tradition. So I always remember that pink is the joy candle, though. Um, to recap, we have been walking through Advent in sort of a step-by-step -step way. Jonathan opened us up a couple of weeks ago with a sermon on hope. Um, our hope is in Christ and that it is eternal and that we get to live in that now. Kyle actually read the passage right above this section of scripture last week and he sort of set the stage for who John the Baptist was. Um, that he is the messenger in line with the Old Testament um, prophecies, that he prepares the way for Jesus, um, sort of set him in his time and place and scenery. And one thing that really stuck with me um, was Kyle pointed out that John the Baptist is giving his message of the coming Messiah 30 years after Jesus has been born, 30 years after the nativity scene that we tend to celebrate in Christmas, um, as a reminder that um, the nativity scene is not our only hope. It is the evidence of the hope to come. And that's something I want us to sort of carry with us into this week. If you haven't had a chance to listen to those sermons, they're online recommend them they're awesome um, but today we're going to get into what john the baptist actually tells his people uh, what he actually is saying down by the jordan river um, and i think we need this because john is teaching the people how to prepare for the coming king and advent is all about preparation and it's all about waiting and we are terrible at preparation and waiting just as a people part of it is cultural part of it is that most of this congregation, we're a young group. Um, we're not really accustomed to waiting. But part of it is just ingrained in human nature. We don't like to wait. A couple of years ago, my family and I went to Disney. Uh, we went in February of 2020, so right before Disney. Actually, Disney probably was an unsafe place to be at the time. We just didn't know it. But right before COVID sort of landed in the United States, we took our daughter to Disney. And we'd been to other theme parks. I had not been to Disney as an adult. Some people really love Disney. Some people are, like, okay or anti-Disney. But, like, as we went, one of the things I was struck by was that in Disney, just like any other theme park, you spend all of your time waiting, right? Like, you have a couple hours of your day, maybe, where you're having these experiences and rides and meet and greets. But most of the time you're there, you're just waiting for something else to happen. But Disney works, and Disney brings people back year after year by thousands because they distract you from the fact that you're waiting, right? Like, if you go on a, a Disney princess ride, you wait in lines 
around this princess architecture, so you feel like you're in a castle and in a story. If you go on a circus Dumbo ride, there's a playground so the kids can feel all zany and crazy and get out all their movement, and you don't even notice that you've actually been waiting for an hour to ride this thing, because this, the park is really, really good at distracting us from waiting. And we love that. Like, we will do, we will touch all of the buttons on those displays and, like, let our kids go in there and, like, lick everything and get COVID and bird flu and anthrax and all the things because <laughs> I'm a nurse, so obviously I know what I'm talking about. Uh, so, and, but they will get all of these things and we will let them do it so that they don't have to stand there and wait. And what John's message is all about is how to prepare well, how to live into not being distracted as we wait, but how to live into this sort of preparation for our coming king. Even if he's a little bit grumpy about how he says it, I think he's got a lot of good points. Um, so he kind of opens his message up by this warning that the axe is at the root of the tree and anything that does not produce fruit and keeping with repentance will be cut down. Um, sort of an unfamiliar picture to us, but we see very similar sorts of imagery all throughout the Old Testament. If you've been at Mosaic over the fall, the guys have been walking us through um, the Old Testament minor prophets, and we see over and over again God warning his people that he is judging for their good, like that he is the one who, in relationship with them, in communion with them, will continue to clear the dead things out of their world, that he will continue to rectify their relationship with him through his judgment, right? And we don't always associate these pictures of the judgment to come with Jesus, um, because we like to think of Jesus as like our cool friend, you know? Like, and we tend to separate that from some of the things we've heard in the Old Testament about like, God, our scary dad, um, who kind of freaks us out a little bit, you know. Um, but the gospel authors don't want us to make that separation. Um, even in the gospel of John, they open with this line, that in the beginning was the word, right? And the word dwelt among us. This idea that Jesus was with God the Father throughout all of creation. But what I hope that we've been able to see over the fall, um, if you've been here, and if not, just as you've studied the Old Testament in general, is this idea that God the Father is working his judgments out in kindness, right? And that this same sort of relationship with his people, Jesus intends to establish as well. Um, and so we see this picture of John and Jesus sort of falling right in line with all of these things we've seen in the Old Testament and warning the people to repent. He is warning them to bear fruit, is the way he says it. And he tells them, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Um, for I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. Right? And we've heard, again, this is very similar to other calls and warnings we've heard throughout the Old Testament. God's people relying on their customs, their religion, their heritage, to bear fruit for them, to be enough to connect them with their relationship with um, God and to to sort of bear out this, this fruit of repentance, right? And as Gentiles, we sort of understand um, our culture, our heritage. We don't necessarily lean on that the same kind of way a Jewish person does, but um, there are a million other things that we trust um, in our lives to bear fruit. 
that the scriptures say we should not lean on, right? Like, and, and the people, when John says this to them, are baffled and they're confused and they say, what do we do? Um, and I think I find myself there year after year, like day after day, like what then do I do? Because if I'm really honest, there are a lot of places that I lean on to bear fruit. Um, like my own self-righteousness and my own religious practices, my own um, ability to read enough self-help books and to um, strategize and plan my life in a way that it will bear fruit, in a way to trust myself as my own savior. And time after time, it fails me, and I don't bear this fruit that John is calling the people to. And I think about this on a faith level, time after time, as Christians, as believers, we trust these cultural practices, these cultural movements of Christianity, you know, and we trust charismatic Christian leaders and, like, cool new authors that just have something relevant to say, and, like, we get caught up and swept up in this thing that we believe will change the world around us, that will bear out this fruit of the kingdom, and time and time again they fail. Time and time again we see that those things that we put our hope in simply don't bear the kind of fruit that the kingdom is asking of God's people. And I think we feel this on a political level. Time and time again, we vote for the right parties and the right people, and we campaign, and we, you know, and I vote, I'm not against that, but like, time and time again, we find ourselves failed by these people, right? We feel the pain when the people that you wanted to win won, and things don't really change. We still don't live in this just society. We still don't move towards bearing the kind of fruit that we're promised the kingdom will bear. This fruit that John is talking about takes care of the marginalized. This fruit that John is establishing as good fruit is the kind of fruit that cares for our brothers and our sisters. And we see all throughout our world and in our own homes and in our own communities that that fruit is just not bearing out. And so we ask ourselves, like, what do we do? Um, which I think is kind of funny that the, the crowd asked on that because they've heard what to do. Like, God has told them over and over again from the beginning of establishing them as a people what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to love their neighbor. They're supposed to um, worship him. They're supposed to do all of these things. And yet time and time again, they find themselves looking to other places to bear out this fruit. But this is where John seems a little less grumpy to me and a little more kind and big brothery. Uh, because he gives them out these step-by-step directions. Now, some people really like step-by-step directions. John and I were having a conversation this morning about how I'm not a very detail-oriented person. Um, my husband is smiling because he knows this very well. <laughs> um, we have, like, this recipe box in our kitchen because I thought, oh, it'd be really cute, like, to write our family recipes down and, like, give them to our children when they leave our home. Like, what a neat idea. They'd be able to cook all of our foods from home. <laughs> But Alex has yet to make a recipe with them uh, because, like, they're not very detailed in their instructions. Like, I say things like, cook the vegetables in oil. And my husband's brain is more linear, and he's like, how much oil, you know? <laughs> or I would say, season two tastes. And Alex is like, a teaspoon, a tablespoon, like, you know. And it's not because I'm a great cook. I just don't believe in restrictions, you know? And... Uh, <laughs> 
some sweet potatoes are bigger than other sweet potatoes. Like, you have to give yourself some leeway there. And, and it has become a great point of contention in our home. It's like, don't use the recipe box unless you're me, you know, because it will fail. Um, and so John, like, refuses to, like, just sort of skim over what bearing fruit looks like. Like, he actually spells it out which is helpful, and it's very preschool stuff. Like, it's very easy. It's the kind of things that we have a toddler and a preschooler, and we're working on teaching them every day. Like, sharing. Oof, sharing. Like, feeding the hungry, clothing the poor. This is very easy stuff. And it's almost like the crowd wants to make it more complicated than that, uh, because then they're like, okay, well, what about me? I'm a tax collector. What do I do? Like, I'm a soldier, for the empire, what do I do? Like, they're trying to bring all of these qualifiers into their questions, and all of these politics into their questions, and this larger, more complex thing, like, we do this all the time um, as we deconstruct, and just as we question things in general, we're like, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this? We like to make things really complicated, and John refuses to make it more complicated than that. Like, he tells the tax collectors not to steal. He tells the soldiers not to bully. Like, this is basic stuff that all of our kids are learning in their day-to-day -day life because John just refuses to let it be more complicated than that, even though we always want to make it more complicated than that. We always want to put qualifiers on everything we do. And the gospel is very simple, right? This fruit that we're talking about, it's very clear who we are supposed to be and what we are supposed to do. But I think about those soldiers and those tax collectors, and they have to wonder in their minds, what does it matter if there is one righteous soldier, if the empire is unjust? And what does it matter if there's one good tax collector, if the next person that comes along is just going to abuse you? Um, as Jonathan said, I am pregnant. Um, obviously, if he had not announced it, it would not be a surprise to anybody. No one, no one asks me anymore at this stage of my life if I'm pregnant. Like it's, they might not ask, but most people assume. Um, but there was a time, many moons ago, it seems, when you could not tell that I was pregnant. Right? That I, I found out pretty early, like most people do, and I did not look any different on the outside. And yet, on the inside, like, everything was changing within me, right? Like, I felt sick, I felt tired, I couldn't eat the things that I wanted to eat, I couldn't have six cups of coffee a day, and, you know, that's not fair. And, like, like all of these things had to change immediately. And on top of that, if you know a little bit about our story, we had just received another child into our home two days before we found out, so things were very chaotic, like my whole mind and my head and my heart were just full of this shifting reality within me. And it's like the world had turned upside down for us, and yet on the outside, everything was the same. The world kept carrying on as normal. My daughter lived in the same home with me and didn't know because we waited a while to tell her. She didn't understand why I was not feeling like going to the playground and all of these things. But there's like this thing that happens where everything inside of me shifts even as the world doesn't. 
And I think that this sort of repentance that John is calling us to is a lot like that, but then it can leave us with a lot of questions because in that first part of pregnancy, many women don't feel connected to the fact that they're pregnant, right? Because there's no evidence of it yet. Like, sometimes, rarely, you can forget that you're pregnant in that stage, right? Like, nobody just immediately starts talking to you about it the moment they see you in the grocery store the way they do now. Uh, People in Walmart have a lot of opinions. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but people in Walmart have opinions. Um, But there are moments where you can kind of slip in and out of that reality. And I think that this dissonance is something we feel when we start to talk about repentance. This idea that it doesn't, it's not a full reality yet, but yet everything is changing at the same time. But this kind of repentance that bears out this fruit offers us something too. Like it is uncomfortable and we don't necessarily see the change that we want to see, but... It offers us a special kind of intimacy. I am not more of a parent to my child because I can birth her. That would be ridiculous. Um, My husband is the same kind of parent that I am. He is just as deeply connected as I am to our baby. Um, You know, adoptive mothers are just as connected to their babies as birth mothers. But what I do get to experience is the physical reality of my baby first, right? Like... I felt my daughter move before anyone else did, right? Like there's this growing way that I get to participate before other people. And that's why like when dads get to feel those first kicks, they matter so much, right? Like, and they see the sonograms and they just get so excited. Um, I see the sonograms, I'm like, that's, that's, that's cool. I knew she was doing that. Like, you know, like that's, that's her being, being crazy, you know? And, And those things matter because they welcome us into a different physical reality. Um, If you're an adoptive or a foster parent, you know as you set up the cribs and put those annoying child locks on everything, the physical reality welcomes you into a different sort of future, right? Like it opens up space in your mind, in your heart, for what is to come, right? And a similar thing happens in repentance. It's this chance to act out physically, not just in our emotional brains what it looks like to prepare room for the coming king. Um, But all of these things are easier said than done. We can talk about how good it is to repent and bear fruit all day long, but we know that this message that John gives the people, they've been getting for hundreds of years. They are not the first people to hear that you should feed the hungry and you should clothe the naked. Right? And yet, time and time again, throughout the course of human nature, we choose ourselves and we choose greed. Right? Like As good as these things are to talk about, this intimacy of repentance, this making way for the physical reality of the coming king, we know that these things don't necessarily just happen. But that's where this passage gets really good. Like Luke does promise us that this message is good news from John the Baptist. And he gives us this picture that's sort of scary, a little bit horrifying, of Jesus as this farmer. And I think, like, we have, there's truth in the fact that we should fear him in a a holy way, in a righteous way, right? 
but it's actually a very kind picture when you think about it of who Jesus is. Like this picture of Jesus gathering the wheat. Uh, I've read this commentary that Kyle sent me by this guy named something Craddock. Um, Kyle will know. Uh, <laughs> and he said, you know, the primary purpose of this gathering is not to burn the chaff, right? It's to collect the wheat. They had this process where they collected the wheat by pouring it from one bucket to another or from shaking it out, and the chaff blows away because it's light. And that's how it, the wheat gets cleaned. It's how you can actually gather it up. It's how you can actually, like, restore it and redeem it and rescue it. And as desperate as these people feel, and maybe as disheartened as they feel at John's words, I can't help but think about the fact that John is telling them this stuff in front of the baptismal waters, right? Like these waters that will come to symbolize God's ability to bring his people from death to life. Like John is saying this, and, and they're in the background, right? And he's giving them this picture of Jesus who will gather his people up, and he will set the world right in justice. And the people want to make this about John, and they want to make this about human activity. And John the Baptist refuses to let them do it, right? Like he says, it's not me who can even untie Jesus' sandal. Like this work of redemption in the world around this is only about what Christ can do, right? As much as we want to get caught up in the step-by-step -step directions of this passage, it's also calling us to examine the fact that Jesus can do a work of setting the world right. And John wants to make sure the people know it, that he's got nothing to do with it. As, as righteous as John is and as holy as he lives his life out in the wilderness, eating bugs, like doing his thing, like it's not about John's ability, right? It's very much about this Jesus who will set the world right. But there's this like other promise in it. Um, it's this promise that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire, is how John says it. Um, there are a lot of different ways people look, about, look at this verse and talk about this verse. There are at least three qualified theologians in here. You can ask Grant Francis or Jonathan or Kyle, and they can talk to you about that all day long. Um, I am here if you need to talk about heart failure or diabetes. That's what I do. Um, but... Um, what I do know is this, that the same author of Luke is the author of Acts, right? And they're using the same kind of language. When, when John says that God will baptize us with spirit and in fire, it's a picture of what we see in Acts 2 at the Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes down on God's people, the first church in the upper room, and tongues of fire, this purifying fire, rests on their heads, and something crazy starts to happen, and the people begin to live in a totally different way. They begin to do all of the things, actually, that John is describing in these step-by-step -step directions. Like, as the Holy Spirit works, and he purifies them, as they wait and prepare for the coming kingdom and the coming Messiah, they begin to share what they have in common. They begin to draw themselves um, in as people who are known for taking care of their neighbors. Like they begin to create a just economy within them. They begin to live out these kingdom principles in the here and now. And they begin to share in this kind of intimacy that repentance offers. And they begin to bear the kind of fruit that God has always asked people to do. And it's all done by the Holy Spirit. 
Like it's this amazing thing that John is saying that through Jesus' power to baptize us with the Holy Spirit, through his ability to set the world right, we can live this way. And it's comforting. It's incredibly comforting as we wait and as we recognize in Advent that the world is not right and we are not right. We are reminded that there is a way to connect intimately to what God is doing. That as we'll see in the first church, this begins to grow and grow and this physical reality begins to bear out. It's like a pregnant woman growing and growing and growing and growing (laughs) as I feel now. It's this reality that we begin to shift in this physical realm what the kingdom can look like. Right? The hope of Advent is the hope of the future and the hope of now, the ability to begin to see what God is doing in the present age. Right? It's the ability to hold on to it. And all that John is asking the people to do is not to trust that Abraham is their father. It's not to trust whatever these other things are, that we all put ourselves um, at the mercy of to bear fruit. John is asking them to trust the Messiah who will come. He's asking them to put their faith in God's ability to purify us and lead us and guide us by the Spirit. And it does require laying down those other things that we trust, right? Like it does require rejecting all of the things that we know have failed over and over and over again to bear out fruit in our lives. But it is the only way for the kingdom to come and for fruit to be born. Because ultimately, we hope in this Christ who does it and can do it in communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are always here, always moving us towards this life. Because at the end of the day, this act of bearing fruit is not just about being laborers in a vineyard, being distant from God, this act of bearing fruit is a way to enter into intimacy with him. It's a way to sustain ourselves by knowing God as he wants to know us, right? He wants to be nearer to us than a child is to their mother. Like, he wants to be closer to us than even that. He wants us to be aware of his movements in our world, and he's given us a way to do that. Um, Just by trusting this coming Messiah, even when the world doesn't feel right or look right, trusting the one who is to come. Um, I'm going to let the band go ahead and come back up. Because part of this is about response, right? Like, we want to leave time not just for you guys to hear me talk or hear John the Baptist talk, uh, though that is super important to hear John the Baptist talk. We want to respond to that. Um, The great thing is, is that this Holy Spirit that cleanses and purifies and works in our world is also present in one another. So that's why time in and time out, we do this communion every Sunday to remind ourselves of the Messiah who did what we cannot. Um, So as the band plays, you guys can come up and grab... Um, bread and cups. There's COVID-friendly options and gluten-free options over here. Um, We try to make everything accessible, but we want to be reminded in these moments of the Christ who does what we can't. And we want to encourage each other. As the Holy Spirit lives and dwells among God's people, this is a time to respond and to encourage one another, to pray over one another, 
to live into that sort of reality that God has offered us as we wait, not passive waiting, but this active participation and intimacy with the coming kingdom. So Father, we ask that you come. We ask that you do what only you can do. Jesus, we praise you that you alone can save us and rescue us. And though we should have a holy fear of who you are, you are calling us into deeper and deeper intimacy, and you are good. God, I pray that you overwhelm us with your goodness this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move as you will. We praise you that you do the things that we cannot. It's in your name we pray. Amen.